0: com slash weight loss.
1: Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx, and we have with us, as always, my deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And our special guest for this week is Kate Andrews, who is the economics editor at the Spectator. That's Hello, me. Hello, Kate. Thanks Welcome. for having me. I think me. this is your debut on the Capex Podcast. I, I think, might be wrong.
2: I think it might be. Certainly, as a special guest, I've never been special before. Oh, I may well, have just been a guest, but not well, a excellent. One.
1: We're glad to. to um, your sort of special guest duck in that case we're going to be talking through some of the big political and policy topics of the last week or two um, plenty to get our teeth into here um, we'll be talking about the leveling up paper that came out last week 330 pages of it so there's a lot of uh, that to digest energy bills inflation um, obviously Kate is an economist so we'll have an economist's eye view on that as well and then we're all we're going to be selecting our own sort of favorite Topics of the week quite a nice variety there uh, this week. We'll come on to those uh, later. But to kick off, I mean, the the Leveling Up white paper. Um, it's fair to say it's had a bit of a mixed reception in the kind of centre right policy world. Some people are very are kind of full bore behind it, depending on what think tank you're from. Kate, what did you make of it? I mean, what and more broadly, what do you think of the kind of economic rationale behind Leveling Up?
2: Well, the paper itself is extremely whimsical. I mean it's very long it's a history lesson it, it and i i think um it speaks to perhaps the fact that there is not still joined up thinking in government as to what this term really means. I remember going to uh, i think it was a i think it was a um, uh, center for policy studies uh, panel discussion at party conference last October where you had a handful of uh, new conservative MPs, especially Red Wall MPs. You chaired it, didn't you? I did, yeah. All I did. right. I'm <laughs> preaching to the choir here. Well, you can tell the story. But basically, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought they were all smart. They spoke well. Um, they were not just asking for money. They, you know, saw leveling up as a real opportunity to actually, um, you know, get get the market going, but they all had very different definitions of what it was. And I don't think the leveling up paper solves any of that, which may be from a political perspective is good, right? Because you can continue to bring everybody together with this very vague word. Um, But- there's going to be no meaningful delivery by the time of the next election. And it's not really good for these areas that would like to see some regeneration um, that I don't think have been given very good policy ideas.
1: Yeah, Alice, I mean, you hosted that. That, that, that panel, I remember, kind of posed more questions than it answered. Yeah. Do you think any any of the, the things it posed have been answered by this?
3: I think, so one of the MPs, uh, Bim Afalami, who's the MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, which is a much more uh, leveled up place. Yeah. He talked about um, places, constituencies being overheated. And I think you see that same logic play into the underpinning of the levelling up white paper. It's this idea that actually you need to start moving economic activity away from big cities and away from London and the southeast, essentially. And I think that that's just (laughs) been proven the wrong way to get growth, which increases prosperity everywhere.
2: Mm. Well, I think so. I I agree with you to some extent that this idea that we want the government picking and choosing where economic activity takes place doesn't sit quite right with me. It's not obviously the role of government to do that. But let's say you are going to, and it seems like that is the plan of the prime minister and, and Michael Gove and the cabinet and all the rest. How would you, if you're really trying to do that, go about achieving it? And the very obvious answers are simply not included in this leveling up white paper. You would devolve meaningful tax powers. Right? You would say to regions, you can compete on basically any tax you want. You want a lower corporation tax for your area. You, know, you want to get really competitive about basically income tax, just about anything. Um, then uh, we'll allow you to do it. And that would be very meaningful. You know, The big businesses of the world would certainly be like, well, you know, London's great and all, but I can get a meaningful tax break elsewhere and they might recruit some investment. But unless you're going to make really bold decisions, it's very obvious they're not. How do you even go about this agenda that, as you say, is, you know, it's not very market-oriented?
1: This, I think, is one of the great strengths of of your home country, the United States, is that you have this kind of laboratory of 50 different tax jurisdictions. And you've seen, I was reading last week in an article in City Journal about the kind of flight of people from high-tax states like New York and California to places like Texas, Florida, North Dakota... And I, I just wish we had more of that kind of mechanism here. And obviously, it's a very different country. But
2: Yeah, I, I mean, that is one of our strengths. We have lots of weaknesses too, but I like to focus on our strengths when we have the opportunity to. Um, the politics is another thing. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, America is, is this um, experiment, that's just happening all the time, and you can actually see the gains in certain states. You can see the losses in others. This flight that you're talking about from California and New York, mostly to areas like Nevada, Florida, Texas, um, it's been going on for a long time, but COVID certainly accelerated it. And that wasn't just for economic reasons. That was for you know getting more space, getting out of cities and the rest of it. Um, but I, I, a lot of people are liking what they're finding in these states where the state is a bit more out of your lives and you can control your own finances a bit better. Um, so But yeah, I mean, meaningful business competition is, how, is a way that I think I, I could understand the government's desire to level up, to say, look, we, we want to use more of the UK. We don't just want our economic hubs to be in these few major cities. And I, I, I could get behind that if you were going to do it in a really market-based way. Um, but this paper was, was far more interested in, in, in stories of history past than it was in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've definitely, I think that your view sums up we'll how a lot of people in the kind of, what we could call the Tufton Street Mafia, sort of think about, about this, this mode of uh, economic policy. I mean, Alice, I think you're on the same page as, as Kate, especially judging by a piece you wrote this week in The Critic, but is there anything in there where you think there are some, some really decent things that they've been doing um,
3: yeah so i think if there's one thing i do like in the leveling up white paper it's the metrics um so it's set out you know various measures which it's going to track of and then you're going to be able to compare them and it's very transparent um and i like that that's you know evidence-based policy making and i think we've seen throughout the pandemic how useful data transparency can mm-hmm. be so you know at least the government is being held to account on its uh, whimsical ideas
2: <laughs> Sure. No, I think the metrics are a step in the right direction. But I again I, I'm just I'm not sure how they think they're going to achieve them. I mean, Michael Goves made some interesting comments oh, about yeah, we'll, we'll come Okay, the tri- second, yeah, trickle definitely. down and the rest of it.
1: Yeah. Um I yeah, I agree. It's quite cool. The dashboard is quite cool. You kind of look at your area. Although on mine, in my um corner of London I think only eight of the twenty-one available metrics were actually there. Right. So it's a, it's very much a work in progress mm, yeah. at the moment. I think um, other things people have said. You know, there are some free marketee ish bits. Freeports, for example, is a big a big policy of the Centre for Policy Studies, which is our parent organisation, um, and that's you know that features in here. My own my own personal problem with it is it's not it's not just the the sort of statism. It's the the very sort of pick-and-mix, inconsistent approach to, to things like funding. So there are, since tw- and this isn't just about levelling up. So I looked it up, and since 2010, just for kind of regional economic growth, that specific thing, just economic growth, not towns or housing or anything like that, there are 15 different pots of government money that have been created for that one admittedly broad purpose. Then you add on the Brownfield Fund, mm-hmm. the Towns Fund, the, you know, there are just endless pots of money, often of very different amounts as well. They go from sort of 30 million to 4 billion and stuff like that. And I, I just think that uh, the organisations are going to spend a lot of time kind of with the begging bowl out rather than actually getting on with policy. Um,
3: My problem with it is that it feels like the whole kind of intellectual underpinning of the agenda comes from a complete mistaken analysis of the Brexit vote, the idea Mm. that in voting for Brexit what people actually wanted was a big government to put its arms around them and, and, you know, sort out, heal a broken country. And I just don't buy that at all. We know that the Red Wall is not some, like, Ken Loach film set full of poor people who didn't know what they were voting for. And I, I just feel like the intellectual argument feels more like Remain won the referendum.
2: Well, this idea that um, everything's going to continue to be centralised and people in the centre are going to make very benevolent decisions for people who aren't in the centre is a, is a bit of a, actually, dare we say, a very um, EU kind of mentality. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, just you mentioned it just now, Kate. Uh, Michael Gove gave a speech uh, this week which has kind of reinvigorated these arguments because he was in Liverpool, so I think there may have been an element of playing to the gallery here. Mm-hmm. Um, given what a left-wing city that is he said that um, he he was argue- that, that the leveling up agenda was an argument against what he called trickle down or classical economics uh, i mean leaving aside the fact that those are not the same thing by
2: any stretch <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean what do you make of it from a kind of positioning point of view what's he trying to do here do you think
2: well, i i honestly don't know what that end goal is, I always find it odd when people who are theoretically on the right, or, you know, I mean, the right is such a a broad church, right? But when people who take a conservative perspective, a libertarian perspective, a free market perspective, a classically liberal perspective, use the arguments that are thrown at us as if, they're true, um, or the myths that are thrown at us, I should say. I mean, this concept of trickle down economics, everybody on the right will tell you that it's, it's not really something that people advocate for. It's not, it's not a meaningful concept. Um, it's, it's a convenient buzzword to make it sound like, oh, just help the wealthy and then they'll help everybody else. I, I don't honestly know anybody these days on the right who advocates, advocates for such a position. So it is strange to have Michael Gove suggesting that lots of people. Are. But, you know, if you want to talk about trickle-down, this concept that basically, you know, you enable the wealthy to have more freedom and then they're going to they're gonna make everybody more prosperous. I mean, what Michael Gove is trying to do with leveling up so far, I would say, is perhaps the best example in a while of trickle-down economics. In this case, we're making the state wealthy. Taxes are going to be at a 71-year high. We're bringing all the resources to the elite in Whitehall. And then they're going to trickle that out to anyone they see fit. And, John, you mentioned the different pots of money. I I, I have a few here. You know, the Community Ownership Fund, the Towns Fund. I found it really interesting that think tanks like IPPR, which are way more on board with the leveling up agenda than I think perhaps some on the right might be, are very critical of how centralized this all is. You know, they're saying, well, you're, you're offering so much to these regions, but you're going to decide exactly how they get it. People in Westminster are going to decide exactly how that's done. Um, What's more trickle-down than that? You know, here's your bit, here's your bit. It's patronizing. It's rude. And to Michael Gove's point about trickle-down economics, it isn't a real thing and it's not going to work. So, um, you know, I've often thought that when we talk about trickle-down, you can talk about like a a very um, naive and I think mythical version of what many people on the right for the past 30 years have been advocating for but you can also look at it and framing it with the left and the state and unfortunately we we have a government right now that has adopted a lot of those center-left policies thinking the state's the solution and um that's trickling down in terms of philosophy in terms of public policy and in terms of leveling up agenda
3: and I think we also know that the, the, the problem with trickle-down is that it assumes that there's a kind of fixed amount of wealth that you move around between Absolutely. people, which is not true. We know that you know, with growth you grow the pie, right? But the levelling up agenda seems to be suspicious of exactly the things that we know produce growth. City centres, you know, agglomeration effects, these are the things that sort of stay l- local but go far, dismiss.
2: Yeah, and so often, when when people are talking about trickle down in terms of the right, you know, they they're trying to bluntly talk about a far more complex issue, which is that. We, we know exactly as you say that wealth can be created it can also be destroyed and very very often what the state is doing it, as it taxes wealth over and over and over again is it is slowly and slowly destroying it and that inevitably makes us all less prosperous in the long term um and they want to paint that you know apparently Michael Gove does too who knew um as you know trying to protect the rich trying to protect their assets and all the rest of it um you know Many people on the right advocate for very progressive taxation systems, which people at the top are certainly paying the most. Um, but also recognize that if you go too far and if the state goes too hard, it's not that you get to redistribute that. Re, it's not that you get to redistribute that wealth, it's that it will disappear. Um, and, you know, these are complex, interesting things to talk about. So I get frustrated when people like Michael Gove who well, I think should know better, um, use those phrases, um, you know, in, in, in a way that I think is... is... Yeah, it was,
1: it was a funny one because he was sort of, he wasn't actually even talking about the kind of mythic version of it. He was making a kind of weird analogy between markets and countries he was sort of saying, "Well, in classical economics, markets find their level. So you have things like market clearing rate and wages and all that kind of thing. Not to get too geeky here on the podcast. No, we're all geeks. It's fine." And, uh, <laughs> his his sort of claim, which I found very strange, was that oh, once once cities get too big and overheat, then that the wealth just sort of spreads away, and that is supposedly the classical economic theory. But it, but it's not. It's I don't not. Think any <laughs> economist would say that. He's like. If anything, cities get bigger and bigger and bigger because they're successful. Right. right.
3: But it's such a contradiction with what he also talks about in the white paper of the Medici model of growth, which we know is a city-centred model of growth, and it's also come, came about in Medici Florence through private patronage, not mm-hmm. through state intervention. So he, I think he's just very confused. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my, my, I don't think he's confused. I, just, I think he's, he was... Um, being quite kind of deliberately iconoclastic mm. and idiosyncratic yeah. he's always been a bit like that as yeah, to yeah. So that sounds more like and him and
2: to and, him. and to be fair I mean I, I still think he's, he's he's one of the smartest people in government um and I think he often knows what he's doing which raises questions as to why you would be using it so yeah I, I agree with you there's got to be some element of calculation here and and perhaps it is political you know perhaps it's all about reframing the right and mm. that's been a, a, a big aspect of Boris Johnson's premiership so far but they're taking it to such they are shifting the window themselves away from what they seemed to believe before they got into power which is you know i mean it's a choice
1: yeah so (laughs) we we could we could talk about this all day i mean there's so it's such a vast paper and sort of sort of massively ambitious project in in the more immediate term, so leveling up is a generational project but in the immediate term um the big problem for the government and not just for the government for everyone is that people's cost of living is is genuinely soaring
0: yeah. in a way
1: that, you know, back in the coalition years, Ed Miliband used to always talk about having a cost of living crisis. <laughs> and, uh, That's so good. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing, uh, doing a bit of impressionism on the side. Um, he'd come on every single week for about two years going on about a cost of living crisis. And it was sort of, in, it was a small increases in people's cost of living. But now we're looking at like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds on, on people's bills. Yeah. I mean, what camp are you in in terms of uh, Kate? In terms of how trans the classic economist argument is it transitory or is it going to become a, a feature of our life that we have sustained?
2: Well, I'm going to put my hands up. You've been very generous in introducing me. I'm not an economist. I just write about the economy, um, and I, I do my best. But you know, don't don't. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little bit of distance. So, okay. You know, this isn't a yeah. prediction by any means. Um, look, I. I wish I had a crystal ball like everybody else does. I mean, you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer doesn't know when the when this is going to sort of start to fall. No, nobody does. But I guess what I might point out is that one could already argue it's not transitory. You know, when you've seen inflation, when you've seen prices steadily building with every forecast, every single forecast being outpaced by reality, and with people now acknowledging that this is going to go well into this year – we're not quite sure what it's going to fall to. It's going to certainly be higher than what it was pre-pandemic. Um, you could argue that's not transitory. You know, we've we, we've already moved past that point and. Um, I do find it shocking just how wrong the Bank of England managed to get all this. Um, The fact that just mere months ago, as inflation was going up, as it was clear that this was all going to become increasingly painful, they were still acting as if this was temporary. Now, if you want to define temporary as two or three years' time, or 18 months or whatever, I guess you can. In the grand scheme of our lives, yep, it's a temporary blip. But as you point out, in the meantime, I mean, this means some people in this country are going to be choosing between stocking their fridges and keeping the heat on. Um, These are very real costs the average energy bill is going up by £700. Um, That is not casual money. And I think it's very telling that the Chancellor felt like he had to offer subsidies for energy bills to 80% of households across the country. It's a middle-class handout as as well as a handout for those on on the lower end of the income scale Um, because we're talking about a lot of money that people did not factor in.
1: Yeah, I mean, Alice, the council tax rebate in particular strikes me as as... Uh, because it's based on our, probably our most unfair and inefficient tax, it's a very, it's a bit of a strange way to go about um, alleviating the cost of living.
3: It's quite a blunt way to do it, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I live in a, a sort of recently gentrified part of London, so my I'm in a low council tax ban, even though it's now a very expensive area and several million pound houses in my street. Um, and as you say, this is going to turn out to be a handout to w- wealthy people as well as to the poor and I suppose uh I suppose it's just a function of it being a very blunt instrument to try and deal with this
2: and look I I think you can you definitely can criticize the mechanism through which it's going to be handed out um I think that's that's very fair another way to look at this I suppose politically and also um from sort of a, a winning hearts and minds perspective is that this we have all become quite addicted frankly to government support COVID has completely changed the way we view the relationship between the individual and the state, especially when times get tough. And I wonder, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here, if there is an element of this most recent handout, which isn't just going to people who really desperately need it, but to people who might feel a bit squeezed in the middle as well, if this is the transition, not not just with energy prices, but the intellectual transition of, okay, government stepping in again, but we're not covering all the pain. We're not... Covering your full bill. We're moving away from furlough and a time where the state took care of every business and every employee if they needed it. And I'm not gonna, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna cut you off cold turkey, Mm. (laughs) but I am going to suggest to you that bills are going up. You are going to have to pay for that. And I'm gonna try to alleviate some of the pain. And maybe the next time there's an emergency, because there are gonna be a lot of consequences coming out of this pandemic we might get something else again, but it'll be that just a little bit less. And the point is we are we are moving away from the addiction that we have all formed to that protection that the state's going to give in every difficult circumstance.
3: It's frustrating that at the same time as we're having kind of tax rises and, and, and handouts, that we're not getting the kind of supply side reforms that could really help with the cost Absolutely. of living. I mean, the biggest... Expense for a lot of households is childcare, for example, and we know that there are ways that the government could reduce the cost of that, and that wouldn't just help with household expenses; it would unleash a, a huge amount of productivity by helping women work more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and
1: that's not even necessarily just a big handout. You can just change some of the regulations; it would make it much cheaper to run nurseries. They don't need as many staff as as they have, for example. Just coming back to the the council tax, there's a, a couple of things I wanted to say. One is to plug a piece that we had by James Ball on the site, which is about the data-poor state. And it's about how lots of government interventions are kind of, or the government is hamstrung by the lack of, uh, by not being able to, uh, to have its various databases actually sort of speak to each other. So universal credit took forever to roll out because HMRC and the DWP had to, the databases had to, to uh, in a technical term, talk to each other, and they, they couldn't. So mm-hmm. it took over. And one of the things James points out in his piece is that a lot of the architecture that this stuff is built on is from the 1970s right. and coding languages people don't understand. And sometimes it's that nitty-gritty which is constraining the political choices. Um, the other thing I think is that, Rish, ordinarily, you would go universal credit. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to do that because he's just taken away the £20 uplift, so it would seem like the, mm-hmm. a mighty U-turn. Personally, I think he should have just done it. I don't think people care about that kind of thing, particularly. Um, on a more general note, I think that one of the strange things about Britain is how universal a lot of the welfare state is. We spend an enormous amount of time shoveling money around from our yeah. own taxes to people who don't need it. Like Child benefit, for example, goes to every, every family, regardless of your financial circumstances, over, under, until you get to about 50 grand, and then it starts to taper off. Um, you know, uh, you could even say, the most controversial thing would say the state pension, mm-hmm. which goes to a lot of very wealthy people. Um, good luck to any politicians who try and get rid of that. Yes, um, uh,
2: that would be very controversial indeed. But would, no, I mean, simplif- yeah. simplification is key. And a lot of people have pointed out that we're creating a new health and social care levy a new tax, which is going to come in, but we're also going to be subsidizing energy bills. You know, money flowing into the state, out of the state. It is, it is very messy. Well, it's deeply imperfect.
1: Kate, that brings us neatly onto your kind of... We've each chosen our own topic, and you've written a, a very good piece um, in The Spectator this week about NHS waiting lists, which are really quite long now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so we had the elective recovery plan announced this week in the House of Commons by the Health Secretary Sajid Javid, and he revealed that uh, waiting lists would peak around March 2024 and start to fall from there, and has been very keen to stress, especially the day after, that waiting lists will rise in the meantime. So we're, uh, as of this morning, at roughly 6.1 million people. That's up from 4.4 pre-pandemic, which... On NHS England's records, it was a record high before, um, even before COVID hit. Um, And the outstanding question with this recovery plan, I think, is, you know, what has that been based on? What figures are they looking at? Because whilst they're telling us when the waiting list will fall, they have been very quiet on what number it's going to get to. And the Department of Health, the NHS have not wanted to share those figures. Um, As it happens, the spectator did see them this week. And the models that this recovery plan is based off of show that the waiting list for NHS England peaks around that time at 9.2 million people in the optimistic scenario and 10.7 million
0: in the pessimistic
2: scenario, which would mean that roughly one in every five people in England would be on the waiting list um, by that time. Uh, And then by 2025, uh, which is sort of that 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 next crunch point where we're going to assess all these metrics, um, it would, in the optimistic case scenario would have fallen to 8.5 million. So that's 2.5 million more people on the list than are right now. Look, you have to look at this in the round and um, we have had three lockdowns. Uh, The pressure on the NHS has never been greater. Um, It's been a very difficult time, not just for the UK, but for every um, Western healthcare system. Um, A lot of problems across the board, but, we are now going to be paying significantly higher tax for what we have been told is to tackle this backlog. And I think a lot of people aren't going to think it quite lines up that that extra money gets them a far worse waiting list come 2025.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about...
1: Yeah, and when it strikes me from your piece that all that, that money's going to do is kind of nibble away at the edges mm-hmm. of the waiting list and mm-hmm. we're still going to be in this situation. I mean, what, what It's really could? grim, isn't it? it is, yeah, a bit. Like I think we're reading it, being like, to what, our what? listeners
2: we're just sitting here looking at each other like, "Oh, why did we pick <laughs> <Yeah>. this topic?"
1: <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I, I just I, mean, I I think underpinning it all, I mean, this the risk of going back to what we were talking about at the start is that we have this just in, incredibly anemic economic growth, which means that the kind of resources available to deal with this kind of thing are not where they, where they should be. I mean, we had a speech last week from the head of the CBI. He was talking about how we're now basically locked into sort of 1.3% to 1.7% a year mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it doesn't strike me, Alice, it doesn't strike me that there's a real focus on that kind of bottom line number so much as there is on the, the divvying up what we have.
3: Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were saying about levelling up. There doesn't seem to be a clear strategy for growth. Um, And as long as you don't have that, as you say, you're just going to be having sort of tax and spend.
2: Yeah, I know I I completely agree with that, but I I would but perhaps take it a slight step further with the NHS, that even if we did have spectacular growth and even if there were lots and lots of resources on hand to throw into the health service, um, what are you getting for that money? And it's a question that the UK has never really wanted to answer. Mm. Um, And I still think a lot of people don't. And I think it's telling that, you know, they weren't planning on publishing these models so that patients could know what the list was going to look like. Unfortunately, spoiler—it does get a lot worse, and 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 we do need to be holding this way more accountable, Um, and that's an issue for government as much as it is for the NHS because they're so intertwined. And as I say in the piece, you know, it seems to be that when things go great, praise the NHS; when things go poorly criticize the Department of Health, which means you can never really pinpoint who's responsible and fix this for patients. Um, And we've decided collectively as a country that, you know, for all the extra money we can find or we can get together, we're going to give it to the health service. But I think it's going to be a very difficult few years for the government as people on these lists, we will all know somebody on the list. I mean, you know, if you're not on it yourself, you're going to know somebody who is. And um, I do think people are going to understandably be slightly more curious as to how their money is being spent and why mm. they haven't been seen yet.
1: Are there any areas do you think where there are just costs that could easily be cut in within the health system? I mean talking about certain I don't know job categories, salaries, Um, rationalizing the NHS estate I'm
2: not looking to cut money in the health service I'm looking to spend it way more efficiently right so um, realistically speaking um, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years time we decided we needed to be spending even more Um, but the UK is the NHS is you know one of the most centralized systems in the world it completely cuts out patient choice for the most part um, it uh gets far worse outcomes compared to its european counterparts so i don't mind spending money on healthcare. i mean life and death arguably should be the the most important thing we want to funnel resources into question is what do you get for that and that money is not following the patient you know your extra tax money from that levy is not following you um and that penny's dropping faster and faster i think Um, and it's been very taboo to talk about that in the UK, but with the health service so woefully underprepared for COVID, politicians refusing to adjust it in any way for the 21st century uh, for so long has now caught up with us.
1: Yeah, I think the other... um, We'll have to come on to our next topic soon, but one of the things that strikes me is that the debate is so two-dimensional as well. I mean, any time... And you've definitely come across this yourself. Any time you mention the NHS in a critical light, they go, oh, you want to turn us into America? Yeah. You want a credit card at every A&E. And it's just extremely, whereas you mentioned there, it's European countries we ought to be Absolutely. comparing ourselves to. I'm
2: from America. I don't want the American Health Service. I mean, my goodness, it's it's an absolute nightmare. But I look at Switzerland and Germany. I look at New Zealand and Australia. I even look at France. Um, and these are countries that just do so much better for patients. Um, faster access to care, generally speaking, better outcomes. We should care about outcomes. I mean, my favorite quote to this day, there've been a lot of contenders is the Guardian quite seriously writing up the um, 2014 Commonwealth Fund study, uh, which showed the UK at the top uh, and said without any irony that the only black mark against the NHS was his poor record on keeping people alive. <laughs> I mean, if we can't it's talk... very
1: equal, but you'll be equally dead. Equally yeah. dead. Yeah. If we
2: can't talk about this after a pandemic in which we all stayed at home to protect lives, yeah. I mean, we we should care about people who have COVID, absolutely. And we should care about people who have cancer. We should care about people who have diabetes and all the rest of it. Um and so I, I, I hope we're now more open minded to the idea that perhaps we can make some improvements for the money we're spending on it.
3: But I think yeah. it speaks to the way in which this country has just a mad religious attitude to its that so You said we stayed at home to protect lives but the government was telling us to stay at home to protect the
2: NHS because yeah. it's because it, they knew it would work i mean the 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 tactic there was that people would respond to that because mm-hmm. exactly as you say there's canny this canny
1: marketing if nothing else scary
2: marketing and yeah. now frankly <laughs> the waiting list uh, numbers in the spectator are revealing the consequences of that and look i you can absolutely make the case that it was the right thing to do especially at, as i did i mean in the first lockdown you know we we didn't know what this was and the health service very very possibly could have been overrun, but um, we are now dealing with the consequences of all, mm. of all that. And a lot of politicians kind of s- suggested we would never deal with consequences of shutting down the global economy and kickstarting it again. And it turns out there are some problems with that.
1: Right. It's, it's, it's been a bit of a glo- gloomy one this week. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid my, my story of the week isn't a particularly positive one either, unfortunately. It's about politicians and the kind of protection they offer. So Keir Starmer and David Lammy were basically kind of accosted by this mob of people right outside the gates of Parliament earlier this week, shouting all sorts of nonsense. I think someone called him a traitor. Some people shouting out Jimmy Savile. Obviously, that that, took the headlines. I mean, it does strike me that we offer extraordinarily little protection to even the most senior politicians. Um, Alice, you've, you know you've worked on the estate. What's your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah,
3: absolutely. I think anyone who's worked for an MP will recognise just how vulnerable they are, whether it's walking around Westminster or walking around Parliament. And you know we've seen the terrible consequences of that with Joe Cox and David Amos. And I think while it's really important and, and it's a strength of our system that our MPs are so accessible to their constituents, we need to be thinking hard about how we keep them safe.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree with all of that, and I think tensions are particularly high with. Um The late David Amos being taken from us so recently, and and you know it it is nerve wracking to watch. Um, I have to say it's it is again a a great um, what's the word I'm looking for. It's wonderful that this country is able to have politicians as accessible as they are. Um, In the states, there's just nothing like that, and they're not just accessible to you to perhaps see or speak to or have your surgery with or have a coffee with or the rest of it, they're accessible at PMQs. You know, they actually, the prime minister has to stand up every week and be accountable to his own party and to the opposition. Um, and that isn't something you want to lose. It does seem like in the case of Kiyostama and David Lammy, the police acted quite quickly. Possibly, yeah. possibly yeah. they could have acted faster, though. Mm. Um, and maybe it's it's about creating a system in which there's just a bit more foresight that if there are people standing outside parliament or in westminster and they are being a bit rowdy i mean i i don't i, I haven't seen all the clips so I, I say this with a caveat i don't think they've been reported for doing anything illegal i think maybe one person was arrested um but the yeah, point
1: mainly sort of shouting yeah, it's very intimidating oh, horrible think, so, no no yeah. don't get me
2: wrong it's yeah. it's ugly and gross and we don't want to repeat what they said on this podcast um but you know it's that in between where the public are acting within the law but they're not acting nicely can we get on the forefoot of that and just make sure that when politicians are going out to be in front of them, there is a bit of a safety mechanism involved?
1: Sure. I think that um, one of the things that's occurred to me is that in the, especially in the last three, four years, but Parliament Square has turned into a kind of semi-permanent kind mm. of protest encampment. Yeah. There were always protests there. And I remember in... You know, when I was a teenager, there was the the Iraq war guy. Yeah. He was basically out there every single day for yeah. years and years. And of course, we lived... all
2: got to know Brexit, man. Yeah. And yeah. Steve Bray, every the Brexit, the helped. most
1: annoying man in Britain. Yeah. He is always there. Every time I, I go so on my way home, low. he's there. But you know
2: what? He has a right to be. And I'm actually quite delighted that Westminster has become this little hub of, you know, very intense... Um, political debate from, from your average Joe on the street who wants to show up because politics is for everybody, not just for the politicians and not just for us. Um, but exactly as you point out when when it starts to get a bit seedy and a bit dicey, yeah. po- you know the politicians need to be accountable, but they also need to be physically protected.
1: Yeah, I think COVID has also given a sort of avenue for a particular breed of very really unpleasant kind of conspiracy theorist types who are the ones who go and harangue politicians of all stripes. We've seen it quite a lot outside outside mm. Parliament. I mean, do you buy this idea that it's that Boris Johnson himself is to blame in some degree. Because it strikes me that while there were some Savile-related things, there were all sorts of things being shouted at him that had nothing to do yeah. with that.
3: I, I don't buy that. I think Boris Johnson's Savile claim was distasteful, but I really don't think it takes much for a conspiracy theorist to decide that anyone in power is a paedophile, frankly. Um, <laughs> We've had a lot
1: of stories of that ilk yeah, in the last I mean, ten years. Crazy so, yeah. people
3: are going to be crazy, whatever the Prime Minister mm-hmm. says. That said, I think his comments were distasteful.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think the comments were um, very distasteful and desperate, you know, you yeah. don't say things like that unless you think you're teetering on the brink. Um, but I think it is a stretch to say that he was inciting anything.
1: Yeah, I mean, and also you could say there's a lot of political language that comes in that in that gray area where Absolutely. it, you Absolutely. know, you're having a go at the other guy and yeah. people are going to are gonna kind of I'm, seize on that. I'm
2: all for about the call to return civility to politics. And I, I think that, you know, we should all try to be as um, robust but thoughtful at the same time as we can be with our debate. But it's definitely a stretch to say that there is a direct link there.
1: Right. So we're going to come on to something a bit more cheerful. Alice, what is your um, story of the week?
3: My story of the week is uh, it's the Queen. It's 70 years since right. she acceded to the throne. <laughs> and she's now the longest serving British monarch. And I just think it's... Whatever. Yeah. Wow. She's and beaten I'm, Queen Victoria. She's beaten Victoria. Okay. Um, and I just think it's worth it's reflecting on what a kind of momentous <laughs> period of change she's overseen. You know, when she came to the throne, we still had rationing. She's seen 14 yeah. prime ministers. And and I think it's just a wonderful thing about our constitution that we have her as this fixed point, this this, this continuity. And also that at the heart of our constitution, we have a family. And I think you can see that with the Queen saying, um, well, you know, when Charles comes to the throne, Camilla's going to be queen too. I think that reflects how families have changed, right? She's his second wife. Families come in all different shapes and sizes, as does the royal family. And there they are right at the heart of what it means to be Britain. So I love the Queen. <laughs> God save her. <laughs>
1: I mean, what's more to say? I, I am not as I I'm not really like a kind of die hard monarchist or a particular republican, but I do really like the Queen herself. I think I actually kind of I'm slightly well, I, I'm I'm dreading it anyway because it'll be really it'll be sad when she dies or something. But I think the country's going to go into complete meltdown. Yes, I agree. Like, I think
2: that it could honestly be a, a mini crisis. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, this is a bit awkward because my country kind of fought your country <laughs> over this. <laughs> um, the renegade colonists uh, over here. Uh, <laughs> gosh, no. I mean. the, um, the the, I, the queen is just spectacular um, and I think she was an absolute gift during the COVID crisis as well and frankly even more so since we discovered all of their mischievous partying going on in mm. Downing Street at the time um, and I just like I, I suppose it's sorry to be sad again gosh poor listeners the image that is truly ingrained into my American mind having come over here when I was about 18 Um, you know I in a sense my my whole adult life has had her there but um it it was really last year at that funeral you know i have never felt i suppose more represented by her um as i think everybody did in a way sitting there alone because she just represented all of the pain that everyone has been through for two years being cut off from people losing people and the rest of it um and, uh, you know, especially with our politicians being so misbehaved, she, she it was such a reminder of of the role that she plays mm. um, uh, for the UK. And, uh, she, yeah, my goodness, let's celebrate her. She's great.
1: Yeah. It's also, I think, a ni- one of the nice things about having a ceremonial head of state rather than a politician is that she is this genuinely unifying figure. Mm. I mean, do we think that... King Charles would have the same support. I well, sense he's getting more popular than he was when he was younger. Yeah,
3: I think he is, uh, I think the nation is taking him to his heart. I suppose one of the problems with having a, a family is that, you know, families come in all shapes. So you get, you get like your wrong Yeah. <laughs> so it's not to say that the royal family isn't facing difficulties. And, and as you say, the queen herself is incredibly popular, but other members of her family, not so much.
2: Well, I think Kate and Wills have saved it, though. Yeah. I do. I think they'll, I think they'll they'll make sure that we continue on with the family. That's my suspicion. Okay, what my do, you, what
1: so. do you think? I mean, obviously you've been here for your, pretty much your entire adult life, but do you think people in the States and elsewhere see it as kind of this funny antiquated thing? Or Oh my gosh,
2: no, or, they're obsessed. They just love it. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I was home this summer that Kate and Wills had George. I think that's right. And my office in DC at the time was going nuts. I've at like on Royal baby alert. 24 <laughs> seven Americans love it um you know not again not to and, and and this because because it's so separated now um you know it's it's just a it's it's a lovely British tradition in, in the American mind um no they're obsessed and they're pretty they are pretty obsessed with Mexit as well okay yeah
1: yeah No, that I can that I can see yeah one thing I thought um I don't know if you guys saw this there was a quite fun piece Alice I know you saw it because I think you sent me it Um, which is about the Queen really likes political gossip Yeah. so I didn't know this but there's someone in the in the Whip's office is charged every day has to send her an email with everything that's been going on in oh Parliament. Gosh,
2: we should invite her down to the Red Lion in Westminster. Yeah. Yeah. She would love it. She, she would love it. where should, you get the goss. See it. if
1: Liz wants to come on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, exactly. But, the, but what I really liked about it is it's not like a, a, a generic rundown. She asked, I think it was Desmond Swain, who was one of the people who had to do it once, she was like, give me the stuff
3: that's not in the
1: newspapers. Mm. Of
2: course. Yeah. I'm sure she's reading the newspapers, so she knows all that. She, yeah, yeah. yeah, she wants the juicy stuff. Yeah, don't yeah. we all?
3: I wonder what that must be what she talks about when she sits down with the Prime Minister. Right. Just gossip. Yeah, yeah. Which of your colleagues do you hate? Who Who's going to
0: reshuffle?
1: <laughs> I think my favourite bit of, um, of hers that I've seen recently was there's a video of her with James Baker, uh, this kind of reception in the, in, I guess it's in the early 90s because they're talking about Saddam Hussein and Ted Heath's there and Ted Heath's trying to kind of get in and the Queen just keeps going, yes, yes, Ted, but you're expendable. <laughs>
3: But that's the thing because prime ministers are expendable and she isn't. Yeah, that's what's wonderful about the Queen. Yeah, yeah. let's all stand up and sing the national anthem. Yep, we're, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> how we like to end. We the are actually we'll spare than, our <laughs> I think this
1: week rather than the usual outro music, which uh, is a very fetching little techno riff. <laughs> we're just going to have God Save the Queen. For three minutes,
2: or you could, you could <laughs> do <laughs> a mashup. You could do a mashup, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, uh, only remains me to thank uh, our guests Alice, thank you very much,
3: thank you, pleasure,
1: as, as ever. And Kate, thank you so much. We look forward to reading more stuff about how awful the NHS is in
3: the spectator <laughs> uh,
1: and all of your excellent columns. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast, and uh, we will both. see you next time. Where our interview next week actually is with a guy called John McWhorter who is a professor at Columbia, on his book, Woke Racism, which is, uh, I'm reading at the moment, and is really interesting. So do tune in for that.